0: Well, good morning, everyone. I've got to follow that, gosh. Uh, Today is the first of a pair of sermons looking at Jesus' relationships, and next Sunday, Gordon will be looking at Jesus' relationship with us. Topic for today is Jesus, one with God. And the, the raising of Lazarus was not the first time that Jesus had raised someone from the dead. He'd already raised a widow's dead son. That was done as an act of compassion. Jesus felt sorry for the widow who had first lost her husband and now her only son. The Lazarus story is different. Jesus uses it quite deliberately as a demonstration of his power, of his closeness to God. It is stage managed. Jesus says that himself. He publicly thanks God for hearing him, and he gives God credit for the actions. Uh, Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. Is there a problem with the sound? Okay, Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. Yet Jesus stayed away when he heard that Lazarus was ill. Even after Lazarus died, he stayed away. He didn't go to comfort the family or to pay his respects. He deliberately waited until Lazarus had been buried for four days. Then said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? In the sequence of John's gospel, the Lazarus story leads into Easter week and the crucifixion. It's almost as if Jesus is giving the people one last chance to understand, one last chance to believe. For who can raise the dead except for the Creator God? Does this make Jesus one with God? Jesus had spent three years teaching and performing miracles. Despite this, not everyone was convinced. The death and raising of Lazarus is a bit like Jesus saying, come on, what more do you want? What else can I do to convince you? After all the teaching that Jesus had done, he tried to persuade people by this demonstration of his godlike power. The teaching hadn't failed. It just hadn't succeeded as much as it might. Some people still weren't convinced, and Jesus wanted to rescue all of the lost sheep. As we heard, Jesus had been in Solomon's colonnade, which was quite large. It's also known as Solomon's porch, and if you think of it like that, it's got a roof but no sides. So it had some protection from the weather, which even in Jerusalem would have been wet and cold, if that's familiar to anyone here. The festival of dedication falls at this time of year as we approach the darkest days of midwinter. And Solomon's colonnade was a place where people could walk, they could talk, and they could mingle. So it was a good place for a rabbi to teach, and Jesus was a rabbi. Being a festival time, the crowd would have been bigger than usual, with visitors from outside Jerusalem as well as the regulars. There were probably several rabbis present each teaching his own group. And the, the festival marked the rededication of the temple after the revolt led by Judas Maccabee against Seleucid occupation less than 200 years previously. It celebrated God's power and provision in rescuing his people from foreign oppression. Of course, Israel didn't stay rescued for, for long because it soon fell under Roman occupation, one occupying force was replaced by another. The Jews needed another Messiah, and they pictured another military-style revolution like that of Judas Maccabee. But only about 100 years had passed between the Maccabean revolt and the invasion by Rome. It didn't seem to occur to the Jews. Even if they found another military saviour, it would be another short-term human solution. Once the Romans were overthrown, another occupying force would come along. What they needed was a permanent solution. They needed a savior who would not be overthrown. They needed a savior who could not be defeated by human power. They needed God. God had promised to come to them and save them. The prophets had told them that, and they had told them that God would come to them as a baby. Isaiah said, A child is born to us. He will be our ruler. He will be called Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Many Jews knew the prophecies, but they lacked the vision to see God when he arrived. They failed to recognize Jesus The carpenter's son born in Bethlehem as God with us, Emmanuel. The crowd that gathered round Jesus in Solomon's colonnade was not behaving strangely. This was the way that rabbis taught and naturally people wanted to hear. Rabbis were used to being surrounded by people. Certainly, there was some hostility within the crowd for the question How long are you going to keep us in suspense? Tell us the plain truth. Are you the Messiah? Implies a level of impatience. The likelihood is that the crowd was mixed. There would have been pilgrims who hadn't yet seen Jesus and simply wanted to see and hear him. There would have been disciples who had heard Jesus and believed in him and wanted to hear more of his teaching. There may have been skeptics who knew about him, but doubted what he said. And there could have been stooges sent by the authorities to try to catch Jesus out. And I'm going to suggest that the impatient question about whether Jesus was the Messiah did indeed come from a stooge sent to trap Jesus. It wasn't a genuine question one asked in order to get some new information. It wasn't an attempt to gain knowledge. No, it was asked an annoyance by the Jews who had so far failed to catch Jesus out in his own argument. Jesus, as was his way, didn't directly answer the question. Really, he couldn't answer it. Are you the Messiah? It's a yes-no question. But if Jesus answered no, he would be attacked as a fraud or, or indeed as an agent of Satan for if he was not the Messiah who had given him his miraculous powers equally if he answered yes his answer would have been twisted into either a charge of blasphemy or of insurrection blasphemy could be dealt with by the Jewish authorities insurrection by the Romans so Jesus sidesteps the question and starts talking about sheep. Judean sheep seem to have been a bit smarter than their Scottish counterparts. For they would recognize and follow their shepherd's voice. They didn't need to be rounded up by a mere dog. They came when called. This is the picture that Jesus conjures up. Just as the Judean sheep would only follow their own shepherd's voice... So those only those in Jesus' flock would follow his voice. But who is in Jesus' flock? Those whom the Father has given him. These are the ones who listen to their shepherd's voice and follow him. Jesus uses this analogy which would have been well known to the people of the time. Because people didn't understand his actions. They didn't understand the miracles, the signs that Jesus had presented to them. And surrounded by a crowd, Jesus had to be careful with his language. Jesus knew Scripture, and he knew that Scripture warned against false prophets, and he warned what punishment awaited them. He was careful not to give the authorities any reason to interfere with his mission. He wanted to accomplish it in his own time, on his own terms. So he highlights the things he has done He draws attention to them and goes on to say, I and the Father are one. In the original Greek text, the one is rendered in the neuter gender, and this makes it conceptual rather than literal. It does not literally mean one person, for that would have been masculine, not neuter, because Jesus was a man. Rather, it means that God and Jesus were of one mind or one will. They could be regarded as a single unit because they thought the same way, they had the same intentions, the same desires. God had given Jesus his sheep to tend and Jesus wanted to do that fully. Not one sheep was to be lost. God and Jesus were united. And this idea... unity is of great importance. It is the precursor to Jesus' prayer for his disciples. Just before his arrest, Jesus prayed, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus wants his own unity with God to extend to his disciples. He wants his disciples to be united. He wants us to be united. And better still, He doesn't evade this question. He tells us plainly how we can be united. In John 13, Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And there's more. For Jesus also tells us, how we can love one another. As the Father has loved me, so, I, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And this really is the heart of the matter. The bond of unity is love. The proof of love is obedience. Jesus is one with God because he obeyed him and loved him. We are one with Christ when we obey him and love each other. Of course, obedience isn't easy. Few of us actually like being told what to do. We like to think we're in charge. We're the boss. Or at least pretend we are. True obedience is difficult. John's gospel opens by telling us that Jesus was with God, was the same as God, before the creation, before the world was formed. Jesus saw the world being created. He saw Adam bite into the forbidden fruit and he saw the mess that we humans have made of it ever since Jesus saw God wrestle with Jacob he listened as God spoke to Moses he heard the messages that God gave through the prophets and he knew how God was rejected by humanity time and time again despite this, when God told Jesus he wanted him to come to earth as a human being, Jesus obeyed. Can you imagine that conversation? Can you imagine what it was like sending your son on a suicide mission? Can you imagine telling your son to take a message of good news Telling people that they are loved and forgiven, knowing that the people don't want to hear the message. Can you imagine telling your son that the people will reject the message and kill the messenger in the most brutal way imaginable? Can you imagine doing all that, then asking your son if he still wants to go? thy will be done. Despite it all, Jesus said, thy will be done. That is true obedience. Crucifixion is possibly the most cruel and barbaric form of capital punishment that we humans have ever devised. And even the Romans, who were not noted for their compassion, used it very sparingly. Roman citizens, for example, the apostle Paul, could not be crucified, nor could the upper classes. It was reserved for the slaves and the foreigners. This was the punishment that Jesus willingly accepted. Even more remarkably, Jesus lived on this earth for 33 years, knowing that this fate awaited him, knowing that at any time, he could ask to have the cup of suffering removed from his lips. I've often thought that Jesus had to come when he did, at the time of crucifixion, to demonstrate his great love for us by willingly going through that most excruciating death. But this love wasn't just for us. It was also for God. Jesus was obedient to God's will because he loved him too. Or think of marriage. An older version of the marriage vows has the wife promised to love and obey her husband. I can't remember when I last heard a bride use that phrase, and it certainly didn't happen at my own wedding, um, but it does highlight that link between love and obedience. When two people get married, two become one, but they don't lose their own individual identities they gain a third identity. So as a married couple, my wife and I are one, we are united, but we're still two distinct individual people. We, and I think most married couples are the same, don't give each other orders. We're not obedient in that military sense, but we do know each other's likes and wants, and we do try to please each other. We are obedient to each other's wishes because love makes us want to please each other. When Jesus said, I and the Father are one, he wasn't going down some obscure philosophical alley. He was talking about personal relationships. Jesus' unity with God, his oneness with God, comes from perfect love and perfect obedience. Jesus is one with God because he loves and obeys him perfectly. And Jesus came into the world to make us what he is. He came into the world so that we could love him. And who doesn't love a newborn baby? The Jews were waiting for a military Messiah. Someone who would ride to their rescue on a war horse. Well that is coming. We've just finished a series based on the start of Revelation and read on from there and you'll find Jesus coming back riding in on his white horse ready to conquer. But first Jesus came as a little bundle of joy, a bundle of pure love born in a stable in Bethlehem. God with us, Jesus one with God. Happy Christmas everybody.